Hello and welcome to Organic Life, a podcast for those interested in eating and living in a healthier, more sustainable way. My name's Matthew and on this episode we're joined once again by forager, research herbalist and ethnobotanist Monica Wilde. On the last episode we learned about four types of medicinal mushroom, cordyceps, chaga, reishi and lion's mane. As you heard, there's a lot of potential health benefits of using mushrooms like this in your diet, and that's part of what's making these four increasingly popular. But with popularity comes demand, and there's only a finite amount growing out there in the wild. So I was keen to find out from Monica if she's noticed any problems with overforaging in the past couple of years. Not yet, but there's certainly the potential for it. You know, we're a big population and a lot of the mushrooms that grow on trees like chaga and, and reishi, the other Ganodermas, they're slow growing. Um, I mean, on, on this, you know, on these, you can see that they have these sort of rings and very often a, a ring is a zone that's a year's growth, you know, so, you know, or a season's growth, you know, so some of them are very, very old. I've got one at home that... Unfortunately, some kids kicked off a tree, thought it was fun, but it was 50 years old at least at that time. And we counted the spore layers. Um, so, you know, they're slow growing, which means that if everybody goes out and indiscriminately just starts taking them home or, you know, there's not going to be enough. But luckily, most of mushrooms can be farmed as well. So lion's mane is farmed, reishi is farmed, maitake is farmed, cordyceps are farmed. And they're produced as products. And for the, for, from the consumer's point of view, just going out and buying them, they just have to look at what, you know, try to understand what they're really getting because there's a big scale of price. And obviously once something becomes popular, people want to then try and reduce the price of it so that they can capitalize on it. You know, I, I suggest that people look to see if there are practitioners and clinics and real health professionals behind some of the brands, because I would say, you know, a huge amount of the companies are just internet marketing companies who've found a popular keyword, you know, mushrooms and just got someone to knock them up some mushrooms to a price point. So what you're really looking for is, you know, if it's a powder, um, either loose powder or in a capsule, is it a powdered extract or is it just powdered mycelium? Now, there's a big difference. A, a lot of them are powdered extracts where they've actually made the hot water extract. So the, the polysaccharides are bioavailable. Your body will actually be able to use them. And they might be at a strength of like 18 to 1 or 20 to 1. So these are really potent and far, far more potent than if you're just grinding up mushrooms. It depends what you want to use it for. You know, if you're wanting to incorporate it into your diet as food and as just, you know, general health support, you know, just powdered up mushroom or the mycelium, which is the, um, you know, the growing part of the fungi before it produces the mushroom, um, has, has the same type of properties, um, are going to be great. But if you've got a serious illness, um, then you're going to need something that's been properly extracted. One of the most common pieces of safety advice we give to kids, along with don't stick a fork in the toaster, is that you should never pick and eat wild mushrooms. 
I wanted to find out from Monica where that balance lies between learning how to forage fungi and sticking something in your mouth that could potentially kill you. Um, occasionally when I'm out with a basket of mushrooms in the woods, I'll meet somebody and they say, oh, be careful, some of those are poisonous. And I kind of just, yeah, just nod and say, it's okay. <laughs> I'm teaching. I think, you know, picking mushrooms and eating them, it's like picking anything and eating it. It's like picking berries and eating it. You need to know what you're picking. And I don't really know where the fear of mushrooms really comes from, because in actual fact, if you wanted to, you know, have death by nature, um, some of the plants will kill you far more quickly than the mushrooms will. And we seem happy to let children go out and pick blackberries, knowing, trusting that they can tell the difference between a edible blackberry and a poisonous blackberry. Um, but we're much more scared about mushrooms. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you can tell the difference between a lettuce and a cabbage, you have the mental power to be able to tell the difference between one species and another. And at the beginning, they might all look the same or it might be a bit confusing. That's just because you're not used to looking. But the more you actually look at the detail, um, the easier it becomes. I mean, there are some mushrooms which, you know, you literally need to do a spore print um, you know, put them down on a piece of paper and let the spores fall out from the gills or the pores underneath and look at them under, you know, magnifying glass or, you know, in some cases a microscope to be able to tell the difference between one and another. But that's going really deep into mycology. Um, you know, there's at least, I mean, I would certainly say there's a, a dozen easy to, to find um, and not mix up with anything else mushrooms that nearly everybody could learn. Um, it's a difficult thing, though, because, yes, if everybody went out and did it, um, the countryside couldn't sustain that. But at the same time, those people who do, um, they become so fascinated by nature and so into what they're doing that they actually become really good guardians um, or stewards possibly is a better word. You know, I think it's wrong for people just to pick and supply, you know, pick large quantities and sell to, um, you know, restaurants or sell to supplements companies if they're not going to reinvest. You know, that's the caveat. You know, when you buy something from um, a shop that's been farmed, part of what you're paying um, when you pay for that product is for the farmer to maintain the habitat within which that is grown. So if you're, if people are harvesting from the wild, you know, even if they're sustainably wild harvesting and not over harvesting and things, you know, they should also be using some of the money they receive to reinvest in the habitat in the countryside. Because wherever you go, you can see that the countryside, to a certain extent, is, is broken and suffering from neglect. There are, you know, avenues of trees where trees have now fallen or been felled, where nobody's replanting the trees on the avenues. You know, there are hedgerows with great big gaps where there's just barbed wire now because no one's replanting the hedgerows. Um, the, you know, these are things that need to be done for there to be a habitat where we will have mushrooms in the future. And unfortunately, the rate at which habitat is being cleared is faster than the rate it's being restored. And some of that is not necessarily um, obvious. You know, wind farms, wind farms are a good thing. You know, they're sustainable, renewable energy. Um, yet they mean that whole swathes of land 
get dug up, the drainage rerouted. Um, I've seen, you know, I've seen lots of mushroom places being destroyed just because a drain has been rerouted under a big development and all of a sudden it becomes too wet for them. Um, you know, in parks, sometimes people um, put in um, access-friendly paths. So, you know, to make it easier for people on bicycles and in wheelchairs and pushing buggies and things like that. But they're not always sensitive about where they put them. And I've seen those being, you know, ripped through mycelium, detaching some of the trees from other parts of the forest that just is, you know, it's a death sentence for them. It's a slow death sentence, but it's a death sentence. Just one one thing, I guess, before I forget is uh, I remember when we were out on our walk and you were talking a lot about the environment when it comes to identifying a particular species I'm sure I might be misquoting you here, mm. but it was as much to do with the environment around it as it yeah. was. You know, if, I think you said if somebody just sends you a photo of something, you know, there's a lot mm. more environmental in information needed, isn't there? Yeah. When it comes to identifying mushrooms in the wild, um, yes, you've got to look at the mushroom, but you also need to look at what's around it. Because a lot of what helps to identify a mushroom is the habitat that it's living in. So when people send me mushroom pics on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and just say, can I eat it? <laughs> it's not without a description or an attempt to identify it. It's not hugely helpful, particularly as most of the photos are blurred. <laughs> but, um, you know, what, what type of tree you found it under is very important because some mushrooms form very specific um what are called mycorrhizal associations with certain trees and not with others. So, um, for instance, somebody might say to me, oh, look, I found a lovely orange birch belete, um, you know, under a pine tree. Well, it's not an orange birch belete if it's not under a birch tree. You know, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and the other things that help to you to distinguish it is, you know, is it a grassland mushroom or does it like to grow in the woods? Um, is it growing on wood, even if the wood is buried in the ground? Or is it actually growing attached to the roots of other things? You know, these little differences do make a big difference. And as always, I guess the best advice is really to to look for a practitioner in, in your area, isn't it? And, you know, maybe do a walk with someone and, and get shown... Um, maybe the best ways to, to look for these things, I suppose? Well, it's very difficult to work it all out from a book mm -hmm. because you don't have any sense of scale. You don't have any sense of smell. You don't have any sense of taste. You don't have any sense of colour or the perspective and feeling for where you actually are located, you know, in that in that habitat. The um, I mean, I can I can look at a certain clearing under a tree or a little row of trees or a hillside and know what mushrooms are going to be there because I know where they like to live. And all of that's missing when you just look something up in a book. So books are helpful for a sort of a, a reference when you find that really difficult mushroom that you just can't identify and you've got to take it back and go through about five books trying to work out what it is. I mean, you've, you know, there are seven or 8,000 in the UK, so you've got a lot of choices. In fact, they say if you want to be famous, um, 
just you know, get into mycology and studying mushrooms because there are several new species found every year. And I do know a couple of people who've actually got mushrooms named after them. So we talked about uh, earlier on, you talked about companies um, farming mushrooms. Um, is it possible for somebody just to grow grow their own mushrooms and how would they go about doing it? It's certainly possible to grow your own mushrooms. We've got two on the table here that are very alive um, these two are both growing on sawdust. Um, I suppose the easiest one, if you want to grow mushrooms at home, the easiest one to start off with is the oyster mushroom. So it's not as famous as the others, but it's a lovely one to eat. Um, it's also good for your immune system. It's very good for lowering cholesterol. Um, so it has a lot of other health properties as well. And that will grow on quite a variety of things. So you can grow it on sawdust. Um, hardwood sawdust, not pine. Um, you could grow it on coffee grinds. You could grow it on old books, on straw, um, even a rotted down pair of old jeans if you wanted to get into recycling all your clothes. <laughs> um, so what you would need to start with is a oyster mushroom itself, either from the supermarket um, or from the wild. Um, and under sterile conditions, which are... You know, challenge to do at home, but not impossible. You have to make yourself a little still air box and sanitize everything with um, isopropyl alcohol. You take a little cutting from inside the mushroom as a clone and then put it into some sterile grain. Grain is just um, in a normal wheat grain that you just boil up to make it a bit al dente in a curry box with a couple of holes in the lid and some surgical tape over the top so it can breathe. That acts as a filter. And you sterilize them in a pressure cooker. And then you can, you know, then then insert the, the bit of cloned mushroom afterwards. And it'll start growing. And once it's growing in that grain, you'll see it, you know, it's white, it'll spread out. You can then take it and put it into, you know, the, the, the bag of coffee grinds or whatever it is that you're going to grow it in. And, um, you know, you wait you let all the white mycelia colonize the whole thing. And when it looks like it's ready, you just drop the temperature a little bit, put some slits in the bag that you're using, and you'll see the mushrooms will just grow out of the side. Oh, I always okay. like to have a couple going at home because one of the things about mushrooms is that even when they're inside, they still know what's going on outside. So, um, you know, I'll have these little blocks of sawdust um, sitting around and nothing much is happening. And I walk past one day on my way to get a coffee in the kitchen and I'll notice that one of them starting to produce a mushroom. And that's the signal to get outside because what's happening outside is also what's happening inside. You know, they pick up on the atmospheric conditions. At the moment, we've had lots and lots of chanterelles this summer because we've had this funny combination of heat and rain. And because it's been really, really hot and then lots and lots of rain alternating, it's very high humidity at the moment. So the mushrooms are out and loving it. What are some of the, um, like if you are a sort of aspiring forager, what's some of the etiquette to be aware of going forward? Well, in Scotland, we're very privileged in that we have the, the right to roam. And that means that you can forage as long as you don't take up anything by the root, you know, which destroys a plant. You can't take anything by the root and you can't harvest it commercially, i.e. supply a restaurant or sell it. 
um, without the landowner's permission. But if you're just taking some for yourself or your, you know, in your family, that's absolutely fine. And the etiquette around that is that you should, A, only take what you absolutely know to be a species that you can identify and that you want. Um, that you only take what you want and what you can, you know, what you can use at a time. So don't just go crazy because there's loads of stuff there. Take it home and then it all goes rotting in the fridge. Um, don't be greedy because there's other people who want the same resource as you. And they may be other people in your community or at the local village. Um, and they might be slugs, they might be birds, they might be squirrels. Um, and also, you know, know enough so you know which are any um, fragile or endangered species. And get to know the habitat really, really well. Some people like to say there's a rule of thumb, like, you know, you should only ever pick one third. But that's a silly rule of thumb, because if you're only going to pick one third of a rare orchid, um, that's way too much. You shouldn't be picking anything at all. Um, whereas, you know, and in some areas, um, you might only get a small amount of something. But then there'll be other areas you go where even if you picked half of it, you wouldn't be making a dent in it. In fact, some things like wild garlic, you know, if you you'd be if you're thinning it out, you actually contribute to the health of the patch and make it grow more. So you have to start to really get to know nature. And that's the joy of foraging. It's, it's not just a, you know, a hobby. It's it is a way of life and it's a way of being really in touch with nature um, in a way that's natural to us, because we've been doing this for hundreds and thousands of years, all of evolution. It's only in the past you know, couple of centuries that we've become so detached from the natural world. And I you know, see the rise in interest in foraging and things like that as a, you know, just an instinctive desire of people that people have to reconnect you know, to their, their birthright, to something that's always been ours. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Organic Life. And if you're enjoying the series so far, then please share it with someone else you think might like it. We'd really, really appreciate that. You could do that by sending them over to organiclife.me and they'll find all the past episodes and subscribe links right there. Mm-hmm.